I don't know if you read sci-fi novels or watch sci-fi movies a lot, but one of my favorites is A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to quote it verbatim. It's fine. Um, but the story goes along this path. There's a guy named Arthur Dent. He's just a normal guy. And one day he finds out that there's aliens in the universe. And these aliens are actually going to put an intergalactic highway right through the Milky, Ga Milky Way galaxy. And they have to remove Earth from the galaxy in order to put this highway in. So, I know all you guys are like, what, is, what happened? Right? So, in, in just a brief moment, he's faced with this cataclysmic reality that in a moment, the Earth will be no more, replaced by something as meaningless as an intergalactic highway. So, Arthur's actually ended up saved. He's the last human alive in the entire galaxy. Good for him. Um, this is totally fictional, by the way. And... <laughs> and he comes to find that the universe itself really isn't much different than life on Earth. As he meets all these creatures or whatever and all this other stuff, uh, everybody's kind of asking really the same question. What is the meaning of life? And through the story, he actually ends up finding out that a very intelligent race built this supercomputer. They've given the supercomputer more millennia than could be counted in order to answer this question. What is the meaning of life? And Arthur is kind of uh, held in waiting. He knows that the answer is coming soon, and he's wondering what, what could possibly be the meaning of life. Now that his world is so expanded, now he understands like, more details and more of what exists. Like What could possibly be the meaning of life? Now before I tell you what Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says the meaning of life is, I know you're all waiting, I, just, I wonder, even today, just thinking quickly about your heart, what would you say the meaning of life is? What would you say the world would say? Those around us, whether they know Christ or not, what would you say? Maybe some of the fill-in-the-blanks here would be something like significance or wealth, power, pleasure, reproduction, bigger family, Maybe easy living. I can just clear the way of all the hardship. Just have an easy life. At a deeper level, maybe it's love. Love would be the meaning of life. Knowledge, more and more of it. You know, some of us would say the greater good. Whatever we could do to ensure that the greater good is done. Well, by the end of the book, the answer arrives. This big, gigantic supercomputer that's been given millions and millions of years to think about it, it comes out with an answer. And the answer is the number 42. Just the 42. 42. Now, that's absolutely absurd. Right? It's absolutely absurd. It makes no sense. How could the meaning of life be boiled down to a two-digit number? But I would just encourage you, as you think about the question, what is the meaning of life, oftentimes some of the things that flutter into our mind... Some of the things that we would catch in our heart, those quick beliefs, if we were to look at those things hard enough, if we were to dissect those things far enough, we would see that there's a lot that we might cling to that is just as absurd as the number 42. Ecclesiastes is my favorite book, <laughs> my favorite book because it does this work for us. It goes through all the pursuits that somebody could live 
so that somebody could go after. And one by one, and I'll be honest with you, it can be a little demoralizing at times. One by one, it says, no, not good enough. That can't be the meaning of your life. That can't be the pursuit of your life. That is not worth it. But as we wrestle with this, and we might be able to capture those thoughts and those beliefs real quick, is that really the meaning of my life? Sometimes it's just not that clear. Sometimes we're just left with a sense that this world is absurd. And Ecclesiastes helps us out there as well. It paints this vivid picture of the world, broken and empty and meaningless, and asks us the question, are we going to turn to something from this world, or are we going to be able to consider what the true meaning of life is, what the true purpose of life is, what life's true worth is? Ecclesiastes is fantastic because it doesn't hold any punches, but in doing so, it helps us to consider the Lord and the gospel for us even today. So, look with me in verse 1. Verse 1, we get introduced to the teacher, the one who is writing all of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, all everybody who's been through Sunday school immediately jumps to the solution of who this is, right? It's Solomon, right? It might not be Solomon, but the best case scenario, best guess we have is Solomon. And if you remember just a little bit about who Solomon was, yes, he is the son of David. He is king in Israel. And he's also the one who wrote the book of Proverbs, which is chock full of wisdom. Ecclesiastes helps us kind of digest all the wisdom we find in Proverbs by painting it inside of a real life picture. We are not just going to be going over round two of Solomon's Proverbs here. What we're going to be seeing is Solomon work through those Proverbs in real life and almost in a sense conduct an experiment. He is looking for the meaning of life in all the things around him. And as he does so, as he puts his wisdom into practice, he records his thoughts. So it's like Proverbs with narrative attached. So this teacher is going to help us understand what it looks like to live in this world. And so he gives us the message of his book in verse 2. Look at this. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility, Everything is futile. So his message, summed up in less words than this, is life is futile. Now, futile has some other meanings, right? We can say, or synonyms, vanity, short-lived, pointless. I mean, the actual picture here of the word futile is, is a whiff of smoke, like your breath on a cold day, that there it's one moment and instantaneously gone the next. And that's what he's saying. He's saying this life that we all share, all these things that are going on, everything inside of it, whether we know about it or not, it's all futile. It's all a vapor. It's all vanity. It's all done in vain. The teacher here is giving us some hard news on the nose here this morning. And all these things, all this stuff that we can experience in life is meaningless. It's meaningless. He actually goes on. Not only is this his message, but he follows it up with a question. He says, what does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So here, we're all people, right? We all toil every single day. But the teacher says, hey, just so you know, all these things that you might encounter and experience in life, things you might pursue, the things that you might think you know or think you don't know, it's all futile. So let me ask you a question. In a futile world, 
can you gain anything? Is there anything to gain that isn't meaningless from meaningless from a meaningless life? This is really tough. This is really tough. Again, this hits us right on the nose, right in the American dream. Oof, right? We need to understand that life is a vapor. We also need to understand that our pursuits are a vapor as well. This question comes up throughout the book, right? It comes up three times. What is there to gain in life under the sun? And he keeps bringing it up to keep hammering down the point to us that this life that we live, this futile life, is useless, fading, ineffective, unsatisfying, and ultimately meaningless. Now, this is not your typical Sunday morning sermon, right? But bear with me, please, bear with me. We have to go a little bit deeper, we have to get a little bit more sober, but don't worry, there is gospel news here for us. But maybe you don't need that. You don't need me to tell you what the teacher has said in verses 2 and 3. Maybe today you already feel that. You already know that. You've had enough life experience to understand that there is no hope here in this world. There is nothing to gain here in this world. Maybe today you are feeling the meaninglessness of life today. But maybe you aren't. And the teacher here assumes that you aren't. The teacher here assumes that there still might be, even just after two verses, still full of some sort of hope for meaning in this world. So he provides us with four proofs, each one sharing an aspect of what he has already told us in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 4. Here's his first proof. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So the first proof of a futile existence, a futile world, a futile life, is that the generations just just never stop. One generation comes, the other one goes, and the next one comes, the next one goes, so on and so forth. But the earth, as far as a floating rock is concerned, stays. I mean, just think about that. Think about the scope that that puts on you. You come and you go, but this hunk of rock floating in space, orbiting around the sun, remains? Oh, man just shows us that this futile life is temporary. It's fleeting. Just as quick as that smoke goes away, that's as quickly as the generations go away. Verse 5 is his next proof. He writes this. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises. Uh, Now the teacher looks at nature and he says, well, the generations come and go. Well, the sun does the same thing. It's just on this endless treadmill Around and around and around. Correction, we are in an endless treadmill around and around and around. I'm an adult, right? So here the teacher is highlighting, yeah, life is temporary, but it's also exhausting. Life in a futile world is exhausting. It just never ends, right? Verse 6 goes on. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, 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 goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. We've had a few blustery days here. As I'm driving my car up 23, there's no rhyme or reason to the wind. I want to stretch a 23, and I get blown to the right. Stretch a 23, I get blown to the left. I'm like, just pick a way, right? If you're going to blow me off the road, just pick a side of the road and just help me out here, right? But that's just what the wind does, and that's what he's trying to point out. It's chaotic. Life in this futile world is temporary, exhausting, and chaotic. If you need any more convincing, look at verse 7. 
All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. Again, turning to nature, he says, these streams, these rivers, they just run ad nauseum, constantly going. And yet, none of the lakes, none of the ponds, none of these things ever overflow. Right? Why is that? Well, he's pointing out that life is just ultimately unsatisfying. So here through these four proofs, he's just painting this, this deeper and deeper picture, helping us to sober up in order to understand that Ecclesiastes is trying to help us see that the life on earth is broken, empty, and meaningless. It's broken, empty, and meaningless. Again, please bear with me. So we have to ask the question. Uh, we are seven verses deep into Ecclesiastes, right? And the rest of the book is like this too. Why? Why would the teacher paint such a negative picture of our world and the life here on the world? I mean, again, our, our Americanness chimes up, right? Pastor Josh, is life really that meaningless? Like, don't we see sparks, both big and small, every single day of meaning? I mean, aren't there good things in this world, in my life, this morning, bagels included, that just spark in me, like, this hope that there is meaning? I mean, life is full of success, is it not? Isn't that a good thing? Life is full of friends and family. Aren't those good things that we can find meaning and purpose and value in? Life is full of experiences, travel, dining experiences, movies, whatever it might be. Aren't those good things? New inventions, for crying out loud. New toothbrushes. All these things. <laughs> Isn't life just full of the new and the new and the new? What about things as simple as weekends? Aren't those good things? What about games? <laughs> We're joking around in youth group. What about puppies and candy? I mean, at any moment, if I'm feeling down, I can just go on my phone and find a meme about a cat. That cheers me up. Isn't that a good thing? We struggle with this. We struggle at the truth that our world is broken and empty and meaningless. And some of those, some of those counterpoints that come up help us understand our heart. And that's exactly what the teacher is doing. He's being so sober-minded about reality. He's being so negative about reality that we would sober up, that we would take a real look at reality around us. The teacher sobers us up to help us consider our own lives. And maybe you haven't done this, maybe you have done this, but the, the teacher is really trying to get us to three questions here. I mean, have you ever considered what you think the meaning of life is? Have you sat down? Maybe put pen to paper and just try to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Have you ever considered what you pursue and why you pursue it? The teacher wants to not just help us answer that first question, but he wants to unfold that truth down into our hearts and say, well, whatever you find your meaning in, that's what you're going to pursue. However you answer question one is going to show up in how you actively answer question two. So have you ever answered that question? What you pursue and why you pursue it? And then finally, probably where our heart comes together the most under the weight of Ecclesiastes is this. 
Have you ever considered if any of it, any of it, holds any true value? I mean, have we done the sober work of thinking through our lives, thinking through our actions, thinking through our goals, our hopes, our weekends, our finances, and just said, does any of this hold any lasting value? Does any of this hold true value? Tough questions. But the teacher has to paint this sober picture of reality so that we would soberly answer these questions. But that's not the only thing. The teacher also sobers us up to understand the solution. In verse 8, he gives us the conclusion. And it's not any better. All things are wearisome. We saw this as we were talking about the sun rising and setting, how exhausting a futile life is. So he says, all things are wearisome. It's all exhausting. It's all perplexing. But more than that, can anyone say, or more than that, anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. His conclusion is this. All things are exhausting and unsatisfying. Everything. And we do a lot of everythings every single day. And we hope a lot of everythings happen every single day. But do we take time to consider that ultimately all those things are exhausting and unsatisfying? So in that big negative explanation of the world around us, he gets to some typical solutions. Look at this. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So now the teacher's going to say, okay, right, we've, we've tackled it. I've also proven to you. I've given you my message. I asked you my big question. I've proven to you that this life is futile. I've given you my summary, my conclusion. Now I'm just going to entertain how you would respond to me. And the first entertainment here is, well, what about time? Just given time, can't we solve it? You just put enough people in a room, give them as much time as they need. Can't we figure it out? Verse 9 says no. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new. Time will not bring about a solution. So the next rebuttal is, okay, well, without time, then maybe one of these new inventions will help us out. Maybe that will provide a solution. Verse 10, and he says, well, can anyone say about anything, look, this is new? I mean, I know I joke about advertisements up here a lot, but honestly, every advertisement is exactly the same. <laughs> They're all the same. It's just a different product. They tote them like, this is the new thing. This will revolutionize your life. But really, it's just like the other thing. And it's just like the other thing before that. There is nothing new. There's no amount of creativity that we can produce that will be able to fix this problem of a futile life. And then finally, verse 11. There is no remembrance of those who came before. And of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. The final thing that the teacher talks about is just humankind. Maybe there will be a human great enough, a human worth his salt, that will be able to finally do something that will free me from this futile existence. 
maybe. Well, the teacher says, no. There is not one person under the sun that is able to do this. Today, the teacher is asking us to consider what we find the meaning of life to be, the purpose of life to be, the worth of life to be. Today, he's maybe taking all the solutions that we may have had or want to have, and he's kind of tearing them all down. But he's asking us to consider the solution to the problem. And you and me, we, all our hearts work the same way. And the reason why he's going through these three things is because this is how our hearts work. Whatever we find meaning in is what we pursue. And whatever we pursue, that is what we value. And whatever we value, that's what we turn to for the solution to life's futility. The teacher here is really helping us examine the dark regions of our heart. He's giving us this sober reminder. Now, is there actually a solution? And you know what? Honestly, I can just say praise God there is. Because if you flip to the end, the very last two verses of Ecclesiastes, like any good mystery movie or novel, like the big reveal happens at the end, you're like, oh man, I should have known that, right? Here, this is exactly what the teacher does. And I encourage you, read, read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, it gets a lot, a lot deeper, a lot more desperate than just the first part of it. But it all builds up to this conclusion at the very, very, the last two verses of the book. Finally, the teacher says something that can provide us hope. Verses 13 and 14 says this, when all has been heard. So he has now gone through all of life. He's gone through all the pleasures, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the success, everything. He has done it all. And he says, this is my conclusion. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. This is the solution. This is the key. Fear God and keep his commands. Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. This is for all humanity. And then verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Here the teacher is saying that the meaning of life is found in the fear of the Lord. Meaning of life is found in the fear of the Lord. To shorten that up, it's fear God and find life. Fear God and find life. And the teacher at the very end of the book says, here is the solution. It's not going to be found in enough time. It's not going to be found in enough creativity. It's not going to be found in enough humans. It's going to be found in the fear of the Lord. So let's talk about that for a moment. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, this is Old Testament language for faith. This is what it means to trust the Lord. Right? But let's unpack that even for a second. If faith is the solution to this life, to this broken, empty, meaningless life and in this meaningless world, we have to understand what faith is, what this fear of the Lord is. I know there's a lot of definitions to faith, both short and long, but I like this one because it puts it into categories for us. The first aspect of faith is to know God. This is theodata. This is, I know this is his characteristic. I know he did this. I know he promises this. Right? It's to fill your mind with the truth of who the Lord is. It's the first part of faith. But then the second stems out of that, to trust him. Right? To, to know all that data and then to say, okay, I am going to base my life on what I know about God. I'm going to be changed because of this. I often say there's facts, 
and then there's belief. We can know that some war happened way back then, but are we really going to base our lives off of it now? Probably not, unless that's your career as a historian. But for us, we would say that because I know these things about God, my faith shows up in that trust, a changed life. So we know God, and then we trust him. We trust his promises. We trust his words. We trust everything. But then we depend on it. We know, we trust, but then we find ourselves to be failures. I mean, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. We find ourselves to be lacking. And then we turn to the Lord. If the Lord is that good and I know it, and I know that I'm trusting him, then in all these places where I fail, all these places where I'm lacking, I depend on the one who doesn't fail and the one who is not lacking. And finally, out of that, we commit to his ways. We know, we trust, we depend, and then we commit. Because I know the Lord is that good, because I'm trusting on him and I'm depending on him, my life is going to show it. I'm going to do what he asks me to do, and I'm going to turn from what he asks me to turn from. And then fifth and finally, all this boils down to love. We just do this because he is that great. He is that admirable. We cherish him in each of these ways. So this level of humble devotion does something for us that we can never do for ourselves. It frees us from life's futility. It frees us from the vanity that we experience every single day. It frees us from the meaninglessness, the purposelessness, the valuelessness. frees us from all that. Now, we have to ask one more hard question. Do you balk at that idea? Do you recoil at the idea that your life is better spent for someone else than for yourself. Ecclesiastes gets down to the heart here to really boil down what is it? What is it that you truly believe about life? I think in each of us, because we are sinful and our hearts are broken, empty, and give into meaninglessness, we do. We do recoil at the thought that our lives are better spent for somebody else than ourselves. And I would encourage you to think about two things. The first is this. If you find yourself fighting back against that level of faith, then please consider that you are not made to find your life in creation, but in your creator. This life is not meant to bring us life. It is our creator who brought us life. And that's the second thing. As futile as this world is, our creator made a way for us to have true life. See, in Ecclesiastes, and this is one of his most repeated phrases, we keep encountering this thing uh, under the sun. We see it in verse 3, we see it in verse 9, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. This is his way of saying, this is part of the broken, empty, meaningless world. We can't find the solution. We can only find the problem here under the sun. But praise God, because God sent the true son of David, the true king in Jerusalem, the true king over all things, into, and just get this, into our broken, empty world, our meaningless world, to save us from our broken, empty, meaningless lives. Sin tears us down. Sin is the problem. Sin is what produces brokenness. Sin is what produces emptiness. Sin is what produces meaninglessness, purposelessness, valuelessness. And Jesus came from above the sun to be that person 
that could not be found here. He was the one who chose to free us from futility. He chose in his death and resurrection to free us from the futility of meaninglessness, the futility of purposelessness, the futility of worthlessness. Today, if you are experiencing those things, if it keeps you up at night, if that's what you think about as you drive and your podcast is on, but you can't pay any attention to it because it's just always on, and your mind is still spiraling out of control, and these are the things you're thinking of, then turn to Christ. God, in his great love, something that cannot be found here under the sun, in his great and perfect love, frees us from futility. Frees us from futility. But he also frees us into something. Faith's freedom comes with two blessings. And we see this all throughout Ecclesiastes. The first is this. This free life, this gospel life in a broken world brings meaning to us. Right? We now not just know what we're supposed to do, right? glorify God in all that we do, trust him in all things, but he also gives us the ability to do it. The Holy Spirit gives us and helps us to produce what we could never produce on our own, a life that is lived for the glory of God. If today you have confessed your sin and repented of Jesus, and yet you still are just struggling to find meaning, Understand that the Lord has given you the gift of faith so that your life would be full of meaning. The meaning to glorify him in all that you do. Now that means that in our families, in our marriages, at work, with our finances, as we're driving down the road, in conversations, whatever it might be, that that is now our main goal. Our meaning here, rescued by Jesus, is to glorify God in all that we do to make his name great in all that we do, and to depend on him in all things for his glory. Now, this also comes with a warning. This first blessing, this first good thing that comes from faith in a futile world, right? It comes with a warning, and that is simply this. Don't turn back to what is futile. Don't turn back to what is meaningless and purposeless and worthless. Don't do it. The Lord is that good, and he has given you that good of a gift of faith. He has rescued you from that futility. And the temptation, though, is to turn back. One of the questions that we have to consider this morning is just where are we turning for meaning that is actually meaningless? What purposes do we have in our heart that Ecclesiastes is helping us understand is actually purposeless? What are we putting our ultimate stake, our ultimate value, our ultimate worth in? That the Lord is graciously here now reminding us that's actually not worth your life. Now, one of the big blessings about thinking about faith's freedom is that all those things that we might consider apart from sin itself, all those things like career and family and all that, that all also finds its meaning underneath this faith in the Lord. When we glorify God in all we do, we bring it all under the umbrella. We say, these are all the things that I do for the Lord because of his grace towards me in salvation. So I will parent for God's glory. I will drive to work for God's glory. I will talk to people at church after service for God's glory. I will eat this meal. I will do these things, so on and so forth. I will enjoy this movie. I will entertain myself. I will do these things, but it all falls under God's freedom from, from futility to glorify him. The second blessing is the same. Uh, not the same. It's like the same. It's not even like that. It's just similar. 
gospel life in a fallen world, right, is full of direction. I think as we're just experiencing this chaotic world and these thoughts of meaninglessness and purposelessness and worthlessness flutter into our hearts and our minds, it can just overwhelming. Which way am I, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What are these things I, I have to do? Like if only somebody could just streamline it for me. If only somebody could just say, this is what you got to do. But as we think about that God has not just freed us to glorify him, but empowered us to glorify him, we just praise God that he has given us direction. In this chaotic world with relationships and politics and everything else swirling about, we just praise God that he has given us direction through his gift of faith. But this also comes with a warning. Right? It's a blessing to have this, this level of satisfaction, to know that we're actually doing what we're meant to do and we're satisfied to do it. But even as the end of Ecclesiastes tells us, right, it is the Lord who brings all of this into judgment. This is not a free pass. Faith is not a free pass to now go do whatever you want to do. It's not a free pass to bridge back over to sin land and sin all that you want and claim that it's for God's glory because you've been freed by faith. That is not it. I think Ecclesiastes ends with such a stern verse. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil, because in our hearts, underneath the weight of our pride, we would take this command to fear God and keep his commands and turn to whatever it is that we would like to do. The Lord warns us this is not a free pass to continue in sin, but this is freedom from futility to faithfully worship God and be satisfied in all that he puts before us. So I know this was tough, but we can be thankful that when we think about what is the meaning of my life, the true, genuine answer is not 42. That would be absolutely absurd. But we can praise God that the meaning of life is to glorify him in all that we do by faith, And that is not just satisfying for this world under the sun, but this will be satisfying for us for all eternity. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of Jesus, that he is the one who is our solution, that nothing can fix the big problems we face day in and day out under the sun. But Lord, you are the one who fixes all things through your son who died and rose again for us. I pray, Lord, as we consider our hearts today, we consider the world around us, the treadmill of life, I pray, Lord, that we would turn to you for our meaning. We would purpose ourselves to glorify you in all that we do. Lord, we would cherish you above all else. And Lord, that would be our act of faith, our exercise of the gift that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us here on this earth alone. Lord, you sent your son for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.